Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. And welcome to those of you watching online on the, uh, on the live stream or on replay. We're glad that you made it a part of your weekend as well. We are on part two of a series we're calling Irreligious. It's a series on labels. And we said last week that everyone wears labels. Everyone has labels, some sort of label in your life. You're a parent, you're a mom, you're a dad. Uh, you're a business owner, you are a student, uh, you are, well, I don't know, some of the labels we wear proudly, uh, we're proud to let people know that we are we are what we are, but uh, some of them we kind of hide a little bit and we're not like super pumped about them, we try and keep them secret as long as we can. It's not that they're not true, it's just that, you know, there's a lot of explanation and nuance that comes with sort of living this out, and perhaps one of those things is the label of religious. Uh, it's it's weird to be um, sometimes labeled religious or we're in a, in a quick hurry to like qualify what it means that we're religious or or maybe you grew up in church and so religious isn't that awkward for you. Maybe you came to it later in life and so to be qualified as religious is like, I mean, I, I go to a church. I don't know if that makes me religious. I, I found this like thing, it meets in a weird theater, it's fine. Um, uh, and we, we oftentimes uh, want to disassociate as quickly as we can because of the bag, sometimes some of the baggage that comes with, not just the religious thing, but you know, other labels that come with, with that sort of a baggage. But um, for us, uh, what we said last week to kick this whole thing off, off is that everyone is fearful of the title of religious, uh, and yet the truth is that no one is ever not religious, um, that we're all religious to some extent because we said religious uh, isn't necessarily a collection of all of the things that we believe um, but it is a, a definition of all of the things that we love, that you are what it is that you love, and you love things. Um, and we just watched a commercial, or we watched a, an ad that the Tennessee Titans PR team put out about their football release schedule, and that was like a big day on the calendar. Um, people around, like if you're a semi-football fan, about a, like three weeks ago, they had a scheduled release weekend, and I... I am so religiously involved in NFL. I had it on my family calendar. I kid you not, schedule release day. That's a big deal. The draft, like all of these things that like you are, like you're, I'm religiously devoted. My heart is devoted towards certain things in the same way that yours is. It might not be sports. It might be some other thing, but you have things that dictate your schedule, your thought life, your your finances, um, what you think about what you do, how your schedule fills up, what your schedule looks like this summer, that we are religiously devoted to things. And the only way, not the only way, one of the best ways to figure out what you're religiously devoted to is to look back on your life. That we said time is the great revelatory um, about what it is that you care about most. Look back, we have this weird perception of we can look back in life and be like, that has defined me. Like in that season of my life, I was religiously devoted to this. That might not be true now. And sometimes it's hard to discern in the moment uh, what we're religiously devoted to. But we have been uh, religiously devoted to some things. We currently are, whether we know it or not. Uh, but the idea of being irreligious really isn't an option because we're all, we are all really religious. We all have things that we care about, devote ourselves to in terms of our hearts. So it's not really fair to be like, I'm just, I'm an irreligious sort of person. Uh, when we when we counter it in that way, um, I, we, we, we realize that we are all 
um, religious. But I understand why you would and we would be hesitant to add the title of religious. It's it's not a very like, you don't put it on your dating profile out there on, on whatever site that it is that you use or app that you use if you're single, um, because there's there's just too much weird stuff associated with that. And sty- there's a couple of reasons. One, stylistically, you want to distance yourself uh, from it because, um, you know, re- religious has this kind of like weird things that churches have done in the past that have been what we would say, that sounds religious, or we, we would qualify that as, oh, that's that's a religious way of doing things. Um, this week, I'm sitting on the couch with my wife, uh, who's in the front row right now, so she can verify that the story is true. And she said, uh, London's looking for a bathing suit. Like, it's summertime. She's growing like a weed. She needs a new bathing suit. And uh, so she's been sending me pictures on of which bathing suits she wants to purchase as a 15-year-old freshman going to be a sophomore sort of kid. And she goes, have you seen these pictures? Have you seen what she thinks she's going to get? Like, you're the dad. You're supposed to say something about these. And I'm like, well, she's not sending me these photos. And she said, my wife hands me her phone and says, look at these bathing suits. Look at these. And I'm looking at them. And I honestly, I go, like, I, do you really want me looking at these? I don't think you want me looking at these. This is... This feels like I probably shouldn't be looking at these. Um, and uh, and then her comment, Kylie's comment was, if I attempted to wear these when I was, you know, playing that card of when I was a kid, when I was a kid, all that kind of stuff. But her comment was, when if I went to, if I tried to go to church summer camp wearing one of these, do you know how many dark colored shirts I would have to wear over top of this? I'd have to wear multiple dark colored shirts. Uh, to kind of get away with this sort of thing. And that's been kind of like the funny thing about, um, you know, like looking back at summer camps and some of the things that as a church, uh, as, as somebody probably on some leadership team somewhere was saying, well, this seems like a really smart thing to do. We need to, you know, make sure that all the, if they're gonna wear a two-piece, they gotta wear a shirt, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And we laugh about it in purity culture, blah, 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 all those kind of things. But um, what we can what we can say about that is like stylistically, that's just a decision that somebody at some point thought that this was a good idea. And then later on, you can be like, that was silly, that was dumb. But we do this. And when it comes to, uh, uh, we do this in life, by the way, like, there are things that have come down to stylistic differences that now, 20 years later, of course we look back on it and think, well, that was stupid. Have you ever watched, have you ever seen the, the meme that goes around with uh, the, the Windows 95 launch with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer standing on a stage trying to live out this like, you know, Steve Jobs can do it, we can do it too. And they're dancing in their pleated pants and their music's going and they're like, yeah, yeah. And you look at it and you're like, that's so stupid. I know, but in the time it wasn't as stupid and it, you know, stylistically, we look back at that and be like, oh, it's 20 years later. It's dumb to watch or 30 years later. Geez, are we 30? Anyways, it's so old. I'm so old. They would look back and be like, that's so dumb. And so, but but weirdly, when it comes to religious ones, it just bears a little bit more weight. We're willing to write off um, being labeled as religious simply because of stylistic differences in the past. It's weird that we do that. We don't say like, I'm not a Windows user uh, anymore because of, because of that video. Um, you, you, like, I'm not a Windows user because I have an iPhone now, but um, it has nothing to do with the stylistic things. But w- when it comes to religion, we're far more, uh, the leash is a lot shorter and we're willing to be like, I wanna distance myself from that because of stylistic things. But perhaps it's even more than that because that's one reason, but it's not even like a defining reason. Perhaps one of the reasons that people in general are so quick to disassociate themselves from being religious is because of because we live in a culture that prizes itself on subjectivity 
and nuance, and religion has a vibe of objective, sort of black and white, this is black and white, this is what the Bible says, and this is what it does, and this is what we do. And so in a world that prides itself on subjectivity, the idea of objectivity, or this is the best way to do things, or this is the way, or the idea of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, it feels very isolationist. It feels very like, I don't want to be that. I want to be, I want to associate myself with all things to all people as long as we're not harming anybody uh, in the process. And so there's more idea of openness and, and whatever. And so perhaps that's been one of the reasons, which I, I can understand that. I can get that. Um, I, I can see why we would want that. And we, would, we have a perception of the church historically as being non-nuanced and non-subjective and not culturally appropriate uh, or, or um, uh, changing of the times, kind of stuck in an era or, uh, that you would say perhaps. And then to glorify something like a text, like a biblical text, and to say, this is the, the, the important thing and we gotta understand all of this and we, gotta, and we know exactly what it says and we know exactly how to interpret it. I know it wasn't written for me in a written different era, different style, different language, can't speak the language, but I, I think I know what this says. Like to even hear that and be like, you know exactly what this means, you know, all of the nuance with that, like it just feels kind of difficult to be able to kind of live in that way or to hear a culture, a community of, of faith say, we are finally the ones who got this right, right? We know exactly what God wants. It's like, I do, I mean, that feels really aggressive and really, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, and so if that informs your fear of being labeled religious, I get that. And I also get on one side of things, being somebody who identifies as a Christian, and loving the validation that comes with having something like the Bible reinforce and reaffirm all of the things that I believe. I mean, secretly, I want the authority of Scripture to be static, unchanging, but only as long as it's perfectly aligned with what I currently believe, right? That's the weird thing about it. I love it when I believe something and then I can be like, and that's why it says in John chapter 4, verse 12, you know, all this kind of things, and we, we point at something or... Um, you see these posts about somebody having an opinion on something, maybe perhaps controversial and saying, you know, quoting some sort of Bible verse and says, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, right? And that's, that's it, that's the move. Um, and uh, everyone wants a little validation in their life. I mean, we all, we all wanna feel like we're on the right side of history or we understand the times or, you know, we're, we're maintaining truth in, in the midst of kind of a, a wave of, of whatever. I, I get that. I'm just not sure how we understand how out of bounds it is in God's eyes for him to hear about like, here's what God thinks about this. And him be like, um, wow, you have this mouthpiece, you have this access you think you do or whatever um, that, is, that is so difficult. And so if that's the reason that you walked away from the title of religious or don't want to identify as religious, then, then I, I get that. What I would like to do in our time together today is read through a story uh, that is in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, that talks through this and deals with this sort of um, nuance or change of things that I think reflects the reality that the people of God, those who identify as um, you know Christians for sure, but even further back than that, just as Israel, um, have wrestled with with this idea of we think we know what God wants, but we're not exactly sure because kind of he's sometimes hard to nail down. He'll say one thing or we think he says one thing and then he does another and so we're just not sure, right? Um, and so we, we then are forced to, because of our unsurety about that, 
hold things with a little bit of an open hand and say, this is our best guess at, at what we have moving forward. And it shows up in the book uh, of Jonah. Uh, and uh, so again, two sections in your Bible, Old Testament scriptures, New Testament scriptures, reality, re, yeah, a more um, appropriate way of saying it is the Jewish scriptures. And then you have what are called the Christian scriptures. Um, this is almost entirely about Israel. This is almost entirely about Jesus. And Jesus coming as a fulfillment of Israel, that Israel was pointing to something that, or the story about Israel was pointing towards something that we needed, something that was lacking, some sort of a ultimate, you know, uh, apex of, of what God is like. And then we get that through the person of Jesus. That's why Paul would later say, Jesus is the clearest per- picture of who God was. We have pictures of him moving within the group, people group of Israel, but the clearest picture that we have of Jesus and who God, and what God is like is through the person and teaching of Jesus. And so Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have a, a book. It shows up in the prophetic um, section of books. So we, we've said our, our last series about how the Bible isn't a book. It's a collection of different books with lots of different authors, lots of different genres, different approaches, different ways of writing some things. You have to read the poetry of Psalms differently than you read the history of, of numbers. Um, and so in Jonah, we have what's called a prophetic book. Uh, prophets were oftentimes people who were would be called by God to go to a group of people and oftentimes Israel, and say, hey, things aren't right. You may think that things are good, but they're not, or things are going bad. You're wondering why things are going bad. I'm telling you that God is saying, you've been unfaithful to me. You have not kept your side of the covenant. You, um, The reason all of these things are happening this way is because you keep doing these things and you need to figure this thing out. So anyways, those things can happen. And um, and so that the role of the prophets were to be the mouthpiece of God to a group of people. Um, So Jonah shows up and the story, uh, I'm gonna speed through some of the parts that I'm gonna guess that you're familiar with um, because A, you grew up in church or B, you watched Pinocchio at one point in life and those are pretty kind of close to each other. And if that's not true for you, then my advice would be, you should read this book for yourself. It's four chapters long. It takes about five minutes to read. You can have it done before lunch and feel good about yourself uh, in that way. But um, we don't know until the end why, but Jonah hears from God. He is supposed to go east to Nineveh. In biblical literature, east was always uh, a symbol of um, bad uh, or difficulty. Or when Cain is banished from the Garden of Eden, he's supposed to go east. Um, when everything when everything bad happens, they go east. When somebody when, when Lot and Abraham split up, Lot, it's just like this picture of if you're going east, you're going towards frustration, which is why John Steinbeck uh, would, would write in his title as American author many years later, East of Eden. I'm going east of that. It's frustration. It's the world of where it's at, even though it's set in California, which is west, but it doesn't matter. Um, uh, He's supposed to go to Nineveh. Nineveh would be, have been at that time the capital of Assyria. Assyria would have been a, a pagan nation, a nation that has a long history with Israel. They'd be the first ones who would attack, or one of the first ones to attack Israel when it makes its way out of Egypt and into the promised land. Um, so therefore you always have a bitter uh, edge towards an enemy who uh, is the first one to attack you when you're vulnerable. Like, and somebody may have done something worse to you, but they were the, these guys were the first ones. And she's like, I really don't want them to succeed. I really, if you've ever started a business and somebody else is trying to attack your business, it's like, they're the ones that spoke first. So I'm really against them, right? And so Assyria has always had that sort of place in, in the minds of them. So immediately as the story comes out um, and the setting is produced, there is uh, whoever's writing this story and creating this story. Because I do think 
personally that this was a story trying to send a message about God using mythical stories to be able to make this thing happen. If you're like, no, 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 this actually happened, then then that's totally fine. I think that you can read a lot of things in a lot of different ways and I'm perfectly acceptable with that. I just think for a couple of reasons, as we'll discover in this story, I think the most important piece was a message trying to be produced about what God is like. So immediately the stage is set, Jonah's supposed to go talk to them, but he doesn't. He goes in the opposite direction. He goes west to board a boat and flee these instructions, which immediately brings up a life principle that I think is ever present. And every time I get a chance to talk about this story in this sort of a context, I heard this once a long time ago and it stuck with me forever. Whenever you know you're supposed to go in a certain direction in life, be assured there's always a boat waiting and willing to take you in the opposite direction. This is true for you. It's true for me. It's been true forever. It's been true for thousands of years because in this story, this, this archetype of, of part of the story is presented and it makes sense for us. If you've ever been like, I know I'm supposed to go here, but man, there's a flight right there. I could just go and do this, right? I know I'm supposed to be responsible with my finances, but man, that looks awesome. That looks like a fun way to do life. And YOLO, baby, I'm only living this one time. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go. Somebody's, if you're willing to, if you're like, I'm, it's important for me to say, rest assured, somebody is willing and offering to have you spend money on something, right? Anyways, that's just true of life. Um, and it's true in this story as well. As the story goes, God hurls this wind upon the sea. Jonah, so gets on this boat to go west towards Tarshish, which for them would have been sort of like this fairy tale as west as you can go. Um, so instead of going east, he goes as west as you can go. Um, he gets on this boat. There's a wind storm that comes up and everybody's like, what is happening? We've never seen a storm of this nature. It's drastic. They begin to throw um, items that they're carrying off the side just to save the ship. Um, then they're like, we've thrown all of the items off. What do we do? And, and the captain's like, if you have a God that you pray to, everybody pray to your different gods. It's a polytheistic crew. Um, whatever God that you serve, pray to them and help us save ourselves. And Jonah speaks up and says, guys, I know what's the problem. Uh, I'm the problem. It's me. Um, so very, very Taylor Swiftish. She stole it. It's crazy. Um, and uh, then uh, they go, uh, well, pray to your God. And he's like, he's not going to listen to me because I'm supposed to be going to east and I'm going as far west as I can go. And they're like, what, what do you... Why would you endanger our lives in that way? And he's like, I know. I just, you know, I had to escape. You guys know what that's like. You're supposed to go east, but then you decide to go west. There's a boat. You were there. Just made sense at the time. And um, he's like, the only way to save this is for you to throw me over to the side. And they're like, well, that would be murder. And he's like, I know, but if you want to live, it's funny how when we, uh, when it's the only thing that we feel like is going to save us from <laughs> from living, we're like, well, murder is it really murder? We begin to like talk ourselves out of it. And so eventually, they throw him over the side of the boat which is fine for him. He's okay with this, I guess. Um, and uh, when they reluctantly throw him overboard, God commissions an oversized fish. We oftentimes equate it with a whale, but it just says in the scripture, uh, a fish to gingerly engulf the prophet and spew him forth on a beach just three days later. And none of this is likely new. And this is probably what you're taught as a kid. And that's where the story ends. In fact, in our kids' rooms, about once a year, we do Jonah and the whale, guys. We talk about it. And we say, a giant fish came up and swallowed him. They're like, no, right? And we build little fish out of paper and we put little brads in it with the mouth that opens. And then you take them home because we post them on little signs and say, take your artwork home from your kids. They made this in class today. And, and they, that's the Bible story they learned. And that's usually the end. And the moral of that story when we teach it in that way is this, don't disobey God. When he tells you to go east, go east, don't go west. Don't disobey God. But if you do, 
don't go near large bodies of water, right? That's been the moral of the story for us. And that perhaps is the moral of the story for you growing up as well. And by the way, water for them was always a sign of chaos in the Old, in the old Testament. In, in ancient like literature, not even scriptural stuff, just in, ancient, in the ancient world, we don't know what exists over there. We've never, nobody has gone far enough. We've never discovered the new world. We don't think the world is round. We think it's an edge. Everybody falls off. Um, that's just chaos and disorder. And there's animals that we don't know about. And there's monsters, sea monsters that swallow you up. And so we only, we go on water with trepidation constantly. We go to where we know. We don't go to where we don't know. Um, and so for them, it was like, don't disobey God. Because if you do, you know, then you're walking towards riskiness and, and factors unknown and all of these sort of things. Um, so after he's spit up onto the beach, he now journeys to and prophesies against Nineveh concerning its God-ordained destruction within 40 days. He's like the guys on, on G-Way standing, holding the signs, 40 days, 40 days till destruction, right? With no assurance that doing so will win them a reprieve. With no assurance that if you change your ways, God, you know, because sometimes it's like repent and or else. And this was just, this was not repent or else. This was just, you're going to die in 40 days. That's what's gonna happen. The Ninevites, undertake, this is the story, undertake a mass action of citywide repentance with everyone from the king to, very strangely, the animals fasting and wearing only sackcloth. So I mentioned what, you know, like the unbelievableness of this story, that this author is trying to communicate a point. He's using leveraging hyperbolic sort of images to be able to do this. What, what kind of images? Uh, you know, a boat that goes in the opposite direction. That's kind of understandable. A large fish that swallows, but then doesn't have the appetite to digest and spits it out. But perhaps the most unbelievable part of this story is that somebody holding a sign about utter destruction, a repent or else, and it actually worked, Right? that this sign was held and the king was like, I think he's got a point. And everybody's like, yeah, I think you're right. Let's all fast and wear sackcloth, which is let's you know change our outerwear clothing. Let's spread ashes all over our faces, a sign of repentance. And let's force our animals to do it too. Wouldn't that be fun? Like that'd be like, that's part of the story, right? Here's why we find out Jonah didn't wanna go. Why did he not wanna go? Is it because he didn't wanna be a bad guy? He didn't wanna be the guy that has a bad mess. I'm so sorry, this is terrible news. He didn't wanna be the doctor to say your illness is terminal and you have X amount of days to live. No, of, of course not. He doesn't like them. When you don't like somebody, to be the deliverer of bad news to that somebody is something that you probably look forward to. I'm so sorry the boss needs to meet with you. It sounds like you might get fired. Oh, it's been such a joy to work with you, but not really. You know what I mean? Like you're happy to deliver that news sometimes. So what's going on here? Why is he so despondent about having to deliver this news? Uh, and I think it's because all of the sudden, people who were supposedly hated by God are now gonna be included in this category of the beloved, that he knows in some sense that these, this idea of this repentance thing is going to work out for them. To Jonah, this is verse uh, one of chapter four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Right, all of this sounds good. This all this is the things that 
the psalmist would praise about God. Thank you, God, for being merciful to me and to us as a nation, that you have been slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in your blessing, withholding from us the, the punishment we so rightly deserve. And Jonah's like, yeah, that's the beef that I have with you. I knew if they repented in any sort of way that you might have within your generosity the ability to forgive them and to not bring forth. I would rather watch from a distance as you rain fire and brimstone down on them. I don't wanna be a part of their salvation. I wanna be a participant in their destruction or an observer of their destruction in this way. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I would rather die than live in a world where good things happen to bad people. He himself has categorized people in, they are the Ninevites, they are the people from Assyria, they're the ones that attacked us. And by the way, in scripture, in your holy scripture, in the books that we've read, you've told us to go through and utterly destroy people like this. There have been histories where in the conquest of Israel and the conquest of the promised land, that Joshua and, and uh, some of the people that would lead after him um, would be told by uh, the God or they felt compelled um, to go into a, a town. And sometimes it would be um, do minimal punishment, but be careful. And then other times it would be, let's raise it all to the ground. Let nothing that breathes air survive. Like it's very, very aggressive. And he's like, I know th that's the kind of attitude that you have, in Jonah's mind, had for people like this but I knew that there was a chance that you wouldn't have it for these people if I participated in this. And it makes me so angry. And so God says to him, is it right for you to be angry? Is it okay that you're angry with me about this? Is it not weird? Am I allowed to be what I am and what I want to be? Or do you have a set thing of how I should behave? As God, here's what I expect from you. And when you don't operate within the parameters of what I expect from you, it makes me really angry. I mean, have you have a parent ever dealt with this as a kid? Your, 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 your kid's saying to you, you're the parent, you're supposed to be this. And you're like, I'm, I am the parent. I get to do what I want. You are not 18. You have to do what I, I, you don't tell me how to parent. I tell you how to kid. That's how this works. This is a one-way street in this scenario. And this, by the way, is where this story takes an Alice in Wonderland turn. So if you thought that this was a wild story prior to this and the whale and uh, the fish and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> just buckle up. Here we go. I was just going to summarize this section, to be honest with you, but I, I thought maybe you'd think I'd made some stuff up. Like I was just, oh, you're just trying to be funny, you know, or, or, or weird or something like that. So I'm not. I'm going to read it directly as it reads in the Bible that you have on your phone or at home or with you in your lap or whatever or, or whatever. Verse five of chapter four, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided for him a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. This reads like Shel Silverstein, <laughs> like the giving tree. Do you know what I mean? You remember that book? He was so happy about the plant, but at dawn the next day, verse seven, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And then God says, so now you're angry at me about the plant. You were angry with me about this other thing and now you're angry with me about the plant. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's response is, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. That's the end, guys. That's how this thing ends. It's like a South Park episode in the middle of your Bible. That's what it really feels like. And here's the moral of this idea. It sucks when your conception of God is being destroyed by God yet again. Why is this story of I think a mythical destruction of a city that is vehemently against God, you know, against Israel, perpetual enemies, all that kind of stuff, and then relented and they did the right thing and all this kind of stuff. Why is it in here? Why did people for centuries, when they're collecting all of the expansive books of like, these are the most important books of our heritage. What is God like? We've written down our thoughts of what he's like. For some of it is like history stuff about where we came from. For some of it's like 10 commandment stuff. For some of it's beautiful poetry that has shaped our thoughts. For some of it is books of wisdom that have shaped where we came from. And then this book comes in here. Why is this book in here? Why is Jonah kept when you have books like the books of Judges and, and, and Joshua with conquest into, into to, to cities and utter destruction of all of them. And God seems to be very anti, or, or um, they, they would call it exogamy, which is basically um, a very about Israel and don't intermarry, don't mix and mingle with other people. Don't let your daughters get married to foreign husbands. Don't let your husbands get married to foreign wives because what's gonna happen is they're gonna bring their household gods in because they get married and they're from out of town. And, and then all of a sudden, we're, we're, I'm not the God, I'm one of a God that's in your household. And then it's just it's just messy. So don't, don't mess around with other people. Let's be are people very, very isolationist. Outside, outsiders are very dangerous. And then you have the book of Jonah. It's like God seems to care about the outsiders too. And it sucks when your vision of what God is like and what he should be about and who he's for is messed up by God himself. And perhaps it's this perpetual reminder for Israel that maybe we haven't always got it right. There's a book named Ruth as well, that is so important. Um, she is a Moabite woman who is highlighted as somebody who comes in and, and her husband passes away and her mother-in-law wants to move back. And so she follows her and has this great story about being kind and generous and lovely to look at and all those kind of things. And she gets married to Boaz and there's this kinsman redeemer peace and part and all these things. And then she's highlighted as somebody who's going to be in the lineage, like David is going to be an ancestor of Ruth and it's made mention of. And, and it's like, we're, we're talking about um, a group of people who are like, even, some, even good can come from a line of somebody who is a Moabite from outside. The, the fact that that book is in scripture is such a critically important piece. Why is it there? It's because a bunch of people are going, on one hand, we think God's calling us to be like, you know, pretty exclusive and just us. And yet he then blesses a Moabite woman with this. We don't know. We don't know. We're all over the place. 
We're doing our best to interpret what God is like, but sometimes we get it wrong and we don't know when we get it right and when we get it wrong. And life is just this ever interpretation of what God is like and who he's for and what he's about, which is why it was so critical for Paul when he's writing about the person of Jesus to say, what we have in our hands, what we've studied for our entire life is lots of shaded pictures of what God is like. We think he's like this. We think he's like this. We think he's into this. We know he's into Israel. We think he wants a people to be to blessed, to be a blessing. We think we know this. We think we know this. And then for Paul to come and be like, but we, the clearest picture that we have of what God is like comes through the icon of Christ, the, that Christ is the icon of God. The clearest picture that we have is here. And so anytime that the, the picture of Jesus comes up and against something that we see about portrayed about God in the Old Testament, according to Paul, we would be best to defer to Jesus and be like, I don't understand why he looks like this here, but God is like this. This is what God is like. That sometimes this informs this. And the reason that this exists over here in the Old Testament is to help us create the sense of that's not how it should be. What It should be something more like this. It should be a more perfect version of this. And then we get the picture of Jesus. So absolutely, we have this picture of Jesus. It's like, this is what it's called to. This is what we're doing. But the point of why is Jonah, why is this story in here? I think it's because a group of people go, we are called to tell our side of the story and to tell a picture of who we think God is, but we hold it with an open hand. Interpretation is varied and we will not always get it right. And that's sort of a nuanced thing. I mean, come on, if that existed for you in reality, if, if that's how the church was perceived and if that's how religion was, things, uh, religion was kind of contained, I wonder if you'd be less likely to wanna distance yourself from being religious. Because oftentimes it feels so hard and fast and such black and white and yet, when we look at what is what we call our holy text, the text that guides us, and for an hour a week, we try and come together on, on, a, on a regular basis, as regular as we can, to allow this to speak to us, to shape us, to interpret, to read our lives as we read it, and to be an interpretive community, to say, this is what we feel like God is saying and calling us to do. This is what Jesus would say if he were alive in 2023 and lived in the Tri-Cities. This is who he would love. This is how he would love. This is what we go and do. That's what's so critically important. The church exists as a community of interpretation. And if the latest interpretation doesn't challenge to some degree whatever it is I had in mind previously, perhaps I have to pay more adequate attention. Perhaps if we, if we treated it less like a book that we read and set on a shelf and go our separate ways each and every week, Instead, saying, you know, I'm still, we're, this is our best guess. This is what we think. We hold it with an open hand. We have, we have nuance. We do have something that holds us to it. I don't want to make this thing say everything that I believe. I don't want to go to it and read only the chapters and the verses that already affirm the things that I like and the way that I think. I want it to speak to me and guide me and whatever. But I think that that then would be helpful. I think it would be less about going backward to a mythical place where biblical objectivity thrived and less about some, sort of a copy and paste. We want to be a part of a community moving forward and figuring out the implications of learning to love and live well in the way that Jesus taught them. So perhaps our fear of being classified as religious is unfounded for a couple of reasons. One, because we're all religious. Our heart is directed towards certain things. 
And if we're fearful of being labeled as religious because of the hard and fast, black and white, whatever, lacks nuance in a world of the honors and love subjectivity, there's a lot of things in here that point us towards we may not get this right. But luckily for us, we do have a picture of Christ that we are called to look at, model, walk through, and figure out what it would look like to learn, to love, and to live in the way that he would do it for us. So that's what we do, why we do. The church is supposed to be an interpretive community of that. And I would hope that if that was true for us and if we live that out, you would be maybe, maybe perhaps so quick to shed the label of religious uh, and uh, less likely identify for poor reasons as irreligious. All right, we're gonna continue this conversation next week and uh, I'd love to have you back for part three, but let's pray real quick. Father, our prayer is that that would be true, that you would highlight that for us, that you would shape in our minds um, uh, a, a picture of a people group that for centuries and centuries have been attempting to make sense of who you are and what it means to live in your way. Apologize for those times that we've got it wrong and we apologize in advance for the times that we will continue to get it wrong. <clears throat> May we walk with humility and give it our best shot and uh, listen and be guided by your spirit as it leads not just Eastlake, but the church as a whole into this, into living and loving well. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like corporately, but also personally on our own personal level, what that looks like in our relationships and in our uh, seasonality of life and uh, the labels that we are currently wearing. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like. Courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.